Sonia, what do you uh, prefer as a term? Oh, see, that's hard because um, I, I am better at just criticizing than, no. Uh, yeah. Oh, me too. It's, it's, it's way yeah. easier, obviously. Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology, a podcast from the Society for Epidemiologic Research. I am Matt Fox from Boston University, and I am pleased once again to be back co-hosting this podcast with my friend and colleague, Dr. Haley Bannock of the State University of New York at Buffalo. Welcome back, Haley. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you again. And we have decided that we don't want to have the podcast go right into our interview segment, and so we've decided we're going to have a new short segment in which we do some witty banter. I think it's going to be called the witty banter segment. Well, it's because we're so witty. And, Obviously. You know, everyone wants to hear our banter, so we might as well share it with the world. Obviously. But I was thinking about this. So these aren't going to air for a while, right? We're taping like a season's worth of episodes. So we can't talk about anything that is like timely in the news. So I don't know what we talk about, like Victorian novels. I don't read Victorian novels. As people probably learned in the teaser, I read like the trashiest, easiest to read type of fiction novels that don't require any brain power. And so if you'd like to talk to me about Victorian novels, I'm always a good listener, but I have nothing to contribute to that witty banter Section. Okay, how about I ask you a question about a Victorian novel and you answer me. Oh, no. <laughs> and you answer me with the answer from the most recent trashy novel that you've been reading. Okay, I, I guess I, you know, to be fair to the authors of the novels I read, I wouldn't call them trashy. I would you, call you them. You did, you called them trashy. I know, but that's not fair because some of them are really good novels. I would say they're easy to read fiction novels. I promise I'm not reading trashy romance novels, you know, with those scandalous covers, you know, at the drugstore. I, I'm not reading those. I am reading fiction novels that don't require me to think about too much. Okay, fair enough. I do have one question for you that is actually news related, but I don't think it's going to be a problem that this isn't going to air for a while. You are, in fact, Canadian? Yes, that is correct. That has been glaringly obvious that I'm a U.S. citizen and you're Canadian. Are you a hockey fan? Yes, I am. Did you watch last night's five overtime game? I did not, only because we didn't get the channel. Womp womp. Wow. I didn't tune in until late, but the reason I watched was because they had to cancel the Bruins game because of it. It went so late. That's playing two and a half full games. It's unbelievable. Yeah, that's that's very unfortunate for the players, I would yeah. say. Yeah. All right. Well, that is the witty banter for this episode. <laughs> I just had to express my concern for your Canadian colleagues, even though they were two American teams or US, I keep saying American U.S. teams. Um, I think even on American U.S. hockey teams, there are many Canadian players. I don't that think is, you're that is absolutely true. You know, the fact that they're in America precludes uh, Canadian or European players. So all the players who played that game. Good for you. Good Way for to go. you guys. Well done. <laughs> All right, let's get to our interview. I am super excited because we're going to talk about something that is near and dear to my heart in the sense that it's a, a topic that I teach and I love, but I also get kind of confused about, which is instrumental variables. And we are super excited to have Dr. Sonia Swanson here to talk to us about instrumental variables. Sonia is an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology at Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam in the Netherlands and is an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the Harvard 
Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Her research focuses on neuropsychiatric epidemiology and on developing, proving, and increasing the transparency of methods for causal inference. Much of her methodologic research is focused on instrumental variables, which is what we are going to talk about today. So welcome to Serious Epidemiology, Sonia. Thanks so much. This is great. Thanks so much for having me. We're super excited to have you. I'm sure you have listened to every single episode of the podcast, so you know that we don't like to jump in with the the heavy stuff. We like to to get to the more important stuff first. So we've got a few questions for you. Um, The first thing we want to know is, can you tell us something that most of our listeners would not know about you? Sure. So my first paid job ever was corn detasseling. So I used to spend my summers working in cornfields for, I think, five or six summers in a row, actually, as a kid. Yeah. Okay. I have so many questions. Yes, go. <laughs> corn detasseling, is that? I've never even heard that. Is that the same as what we would like call shucking corn? No, it is detasseling as in taking tassels out of corn. Um, I think if there's any Midwesterners listening right now, they might understand this, but I'm not going to get into like the genetics of corn crossbreeding um, during this episode, I think. Yes, that's the tassel. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and you have to take the tassel off without taking the husk off yes although i think now we're talking about two different parts of a plant <laughs> so oh, and no. my memory of how this works is getting a little hazy but yes all right so you know what so you know we're gonna have to ask you back for a completely separate podcast to discuss the details of corn detasseling all right second question you know of course that Haley reads non-trashy trashy novels what is the uh, what's the last novel that you read and what did you think of it <laughs> So quite honestly, even lower on the reading scale, I have little kids at home. And so we're experimenting with reading like full length kid novels with my toddler right now. So I just read Matilda for the first time in like 30 years. I love Matilda. What a great book to start with. Yeah, it it was really fun. I think also for me, just um, remembering it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's such a good one. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, last question. What is the craziest thing that you have purchased during the pandemic? God, that's a a wonderful question. I hope you ask all your guests that. So uh, I guess first on the theme of books, just lots of kids books. I don't think I realized how addicted we were to our local library until it was closed temporarily. And then also puzzles for my kids that like it started Mm. with kind of this layer of just buying lots of cheap puzzles. But then like as the adult, I wanted to have like aesthetically pleasing puzzles around instead if I was going to have a mess in my living room. And it just kept on exploding. And I think we have thousands of puzzle pieces that we bought um but oriented towards a little kid (laughs) okay so so help me out here because there are puzzles that go on in my house i don't partake of the puzzling and i don't totally get it what is the joy in puzzling is it really just getting to the end no, so I, I have to say this is all funneled through my lens of watching this toddler do it. For mm. me, it's like watching him figure it out. That that's like kind of the fun for me. But, but then he actually, once he gets bored with a puzzle, he kind of makes it new challenges for himself where he'll like try to do like the left side before the right side or he'll try oh. to do like the edge and then the inside, but then reverse it and do the inside and then the edge. And so I think for him, it's like this like creative problem solving thing rather than like completing the puzzle. Yeah. Oh, that's got to be fascinating to watch, actually. Yeah, yeah. It kind of makes me want to research child development more, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Well, we didn't ask you here for your expertise in puzzling. We did, in fact, <laughs> ask you here to talk about instrumental variables. As I mentioned, it's, it's something that I, I'm a big fan of instrumental variables, and yet I certainly have some concerns about trying to use them. So we assume that our listeners presumably know what instrumental variables are, but we figure it's always a good idea to, to kind of start off big picture. Can you just describe for us what instrumental variables are? Sure, yeah. First, let's just be clear that we're, we're using instrumental variables to learn something about causal effects. So let's say we were interested in studying the effect of some treatment or exposure on some outcome. And whether we're trying to estimate a causal effect or test a causal null hypothesis, we want to learn something about um, that relationship. So IV methods are really just one more tool in our toolbox for how we can learn about that. I think of sort of the beginning step of thinking about IV analyses as thinking about natural experiments to answer those questions, but there's sort of a lot of different ways that you can kind of approach um, this field. Yeah. And so instrumental variables, I mean, there are fields outside of, of epidemiology where instrumental variables are used quite extensively. My experience is they're used in epidemiology, but they're used within a subset of the epidemiology population and that there are other people within our discipline who have never heard of these things. So can you talk a bit about what makes them so useful and, and why it is we might want to use them over the traditional multivariable regression approach that we're typically teaching our students? Yeah, so I think the, the key is that most of the methods that we think about, so like multivariable regression, but also a lot of other confounding adjustment approaches are going to rely on us thinking that we can measure and um, appropriately model and appropriately adjust for all confounding. And the great thing about instrumental variable approaches is we don't even have to name our confounders of our treatment outcome relationships. So it's like this whole other toolbox that gets us away from what seems like this insurmountable assumption sometimes. So it seems to me this is where the benefits of, of instrumental variables come in and that, as you say, I mean, you don't even have to, to know what the confounders are much in the way when we do randomized trials, you get this really cool benefit of controlling known and unknown confounding. But I think for a lot of people, that just sounds too good to be true. And we certainly don't start off our training by, by teaching students. We teach them about confounding control through adjustment. In your experience, do students, do other colleagues, when you teach them about this, do they like the approach? So I think if all they had heard is what we've talked about so far, then they immediately ask the same question you just asked. They're like, this sounds good, too good to be true true, right? And right. the answer is, yeah, it is. It's going to have other assumptions. So I don't know if you want us to like go through the assumptions now, but yeah, that's that's where really the conversation needs to go. I have a question that I think maybe some listeners who aren't quite as familiar with instrumental variables would be interested in. And, and it's that, so you pick a variable that is an instrument, which sort of stands in for the exposure that you're interested in. It, you know, my mind thinks in terms of DAG, so it's a, a variable with an arrow in to your exposure. That, so that's basically what we're talking about when we talk about an instrumental variable. I think that's a good starting point. Um, actually, if you really wanted to get into DAGs, we could get even more nuanced, but I don't think we can draw DAGs in a podcast well. <laughs> you know, one one thing we are quickly learning is it's very hard to get people to describe a DAG and have people put it into a mental model. So probably we can't do that. But yeah, let me try to define an instrument in, in words a little bit. So I would think of an instrument as any pre-treatment variable that has an association with your treatment of interest that 
only causes your outcome through first having a causal relationship perhaps with your treatment and then has no shared causes with your outcome. So is unconfounded itself in terms of its relationship. And so those are kind of the three defining features of what an instrument is. So that I think leads well into the question about uh, assumptions that Matt and you were talking about a minute ago. So maybe you can go through those now that we've we've clarified the precursor step. Sure, yeah. So if we think about the three properties I just named, um, some of those are things that we can never prove to be true in any setting. So just like we could never prove that we measure all of our confounders and kind of traditional analyses that we do in epidemiology, we're not going to ever be able to prove that a particular instrument only affects the outcome because it affects the treatment at first. And we're never going to be able to prove either that it's unconfounded itself. And so those are assumptions that underlie any IV analysis that we're going to do. Okay, so I have this variable. We call it an instrumental variable, but I've got this variable, which as you say, is a cause of or is related to the thing that I really want to know the effect of. So I want to know the effect of smoking on lung cancer, but instead of measuring the relationship between smoking and lung cancer, I find this other variable. And the reason I do that is because I'm worried that there is confounding of the smoking and lung cancer relationship. So what I do instead is I find this other variable. This other variable, as you say, is a a cause of the exposure, cause of smoking in this case. Although I do want to come back to whether or not it actually has to be a cause, but I'll come back to that. Yes, I agree. We should talk about that. Okay, so we'll say for the moment that it's a cause of the exposure. It itself is unconfounded with respect to the outcome, and there are no other ways in which the instrument affects the outcome except through the exposure. Mm -hmm. When I tell students this, the immediate reaction is, how do I then go from this other variable to being able to assess the effect of the thing I really want to know about, which is the effect of smoking on lung cancer? Now, I'm going to use the instrument outcome relationship, not the exposure outcome relationship, and that just sounds crazy to people. So... Let's see if we can draw a dag in this uh, mental dag in the dag. Um, mental dag. I don't know if this is going to work, but if you picture just the super simple dag of instrument to treatment, an arrow there, and treatment to outcome, arrow there, and no other arrows going into or out of your instrument. And so you might have confounding of the treatment outcome, but not anything with the instrument. If you think about that DAG, the only reason according to that DAG that you could have an association between the instrument and the outcome is because there has to be an arrow between the treatment and the outcome. And so if you were lucky enough to have a true instrument or willing to believe the assumptions that you you have an instrument, then any association that you see between your instrument and your outcome must be due to the fact that your treatment actually has an effect. So coming back to Matt's question about whether or not the instrument has to be a cause of your treatment, I also have a related question about how much of the success of this method is due to the strength of the arrow between your instrument and your treatment. Good question. So if we again think about first just a goal of testing this like null hypothesis of like does the treatment have an effect on the outcome you could think that what you just said if you had an instrument that was only really weakly associated with your treatment then you need a huge sample size to see that your instruments related to your outcome even if there is a true treatment effect another way to think about that is like in a randomized trial if you had huge amounts of non-adherence your ITT intention to treat analysis 
this might not detect an effect, even though it's just due to the non-adherence. It's not due to the treatment not having an effect. And that's a parallel example. That's exactly the, the same reason you'd have issues with an IV analysis. But then the other issue with the weakness is that if you actually have violations of the other assumptions that we talked about, the strength of that instrument or proposed instrument is going to end up creating more bias for you too. And so it, it can amplify biases due to the other assumptions not holding. So those are kind of the two big things that I think about for why the strength matters. Can you answer the, the first part? So does the instrument actually have to be a cause of, or can it just be associated with the exposure? So it just has to be associated. And I think that's nice. uh, a common issue. So yeah, congrats, Matt, for, for, for getting that one right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think conceptually it helps to think of it causally, but it doesn't have to be. And then the other thing I would just want to make a plug for is the interpretation of things can get really crazy really quickly if you're not thinking mm. about causal instruments. And I have a couple of papers on this. If anyone wants to look me up, you'll see that I um, talk about non-causal instruments in a few papers. Yeah. That's interesting. So it actually changes the way you would interpret the results. Yeah. So what we've talked about so far is just thinking of testing whether or not there's an effect. And that interpretation still is fine, even if it's a non-causal association. But then if you're trying to go further into interpreting the effect estimate, it can really change what subgroup the effect estimate pertains to, for example. So that is something I want to come back to because I, I find this really difficult to totally wrap my mind around. But let's just go back a second. So you, I've got this instrument. And as you said, I can't test all those assumptions. So I have to kind of make the argument that my instrument is truly an instrument. And then what do I do? So I just estimate the effect of the instrument on the outcome and I'm done? So you could just do that, to be honest. Like, I think that if you just did that, that is all you need to do if all you wanted to do was test whether your treatment has any effect on your outcome. And so, yeah, you're right. It's a really straightforward analysis. And it's just like under these assumptions that gives you a test of this causal null hypothesis. But usually we're not thinking about just testing nulls, right? We like to estimate effects in epidemiology. Right. And in that case, you're going to need to take usually a modeling approach to go beyond that, where you take into account the instrument exposure relationship into how you estimate things. What does that practically look like? How do I turn the estimate that I get from just looking at the instrument outcome relationship into something that can actually give me the effect estimate that I'm interested in? The most common approach is to use something that's consistent with the standard IV ratio. Um, and so what the IV ratio is, is it's just taking your instrument outcome association on the additive scale and then dividing it by your instrument treatment association also on the additive scale. And it turns out if you kind of do the math on it, that that ratio ends up giving you an estimate of an average causal effect, but it takes more assumptions than what we've talked about so far. So it actually adds another layer of assumptions too. So we've been talking kind of abstractly <laughs> up until now. My sense is the economists that I know that use instrumental variables, they all have like their favorite, they have like their pet instrumental variable. Do you have one that is like your, you just love, <laughs> like it's a, it's a child? <laughs> love, love to hate. I don't know. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going 
to be a little more diplomatic <laughs> than what I just said <laughs> and say <laughs> I have several that I like to teach with. And the reason I actually like to teach with a couple is that I think that they all have different strengths and weaknesses of why they work or why people are motivated to use them. So one of the ones that's really popular recently actually often goes by a different name called Mendelian randomization. I'm not sure if you're familiar. But I don't know if our listeners necessarily would be so worth explaining what that is. Yes. So the idea of Mendelian randomization is just that our genetic variant might be instruments, that we might be able to use something about our genes as an instrument in different analyses. So just as an example, earlier you talked about studying cigarette smoking and lung cancer, and we might think that doing that with a confounder-adjusted method is going to be really difficult, right? That you have to think through all the confounders that you'd want to adjust for, and maybe you don't always measure those. And especially if you wanted to look at kind of like a lifelong effect of cigarette smoking, it might be really challenging to have that long of follow-up data. But Mendelian randomization would provide that there might be some genetic variants related to the intensity that people smoke or even the likelihood that they start smoking. And that maybe you can argue that those genetic variants shouldn't affect lung cancer risk except through affecting smoking status. And then also that those genes are relatively randomly inherited or that you can argue that you can adjust for any confounding structure of how we inherit our genes. So that's like one example of how people think through genetic variants as an instrument. And do you find that when you teach that to people that they can grasp the concept fairly easily? Because I will tell you my experience is I teach this with randomization as the first instrument that I will teach. Randomization is great because everybody gets randomization as a way to get a causal inference. And randomization meets those three conditions that you mentioned. So randomization should influence whether or not you get the treatment. It should have no effect on the outcome except through the treatment. And it should be unconfounded with the outcome because it's just a, a coin flip. Then I switch over and give a, an example of a real instrument that's been proposed. So typically I do the example of, in pharmacoepi, the example of the prior prescription mm -hmm. example. So the idea being that if I want to know the effect of one drug on an outcome, whether or not you got that drug is probably pretty confounded because physicians don't just sort of decide at random who to give the drug to, but you could use physician preference. So I don't look at whether or not you got the prescription for that particular drug, but I actually look at what did the person who came in to that same provider just before you get with the idea that physicians don't just prescribe at random, they have preferences for one drug over another. And so that should affect the likelihood that you get that particular drug. But since it's the person before you, there should be no confounding related to the outcome and what the previous person got shouldn't affect your particular outcome. I know there are obviously problems with that, but as soon as I say that, that's when people go, no. That makes no sense that you would analyze somebody as if they got the exposure that somebody else got. How do you convince people at that point that it still works? <laughs> So that it still works. That's a not quite always what I'm trying to convince with the teaching, <laughs> but okay. No, no. So what what would you be trying to do? I, I first have to say that as you were talking through that, I was nodding along to myself that it, it's really an experience I get while teaching too. That um, students get very skeptical very quickly when I start giving IV analyses that have actually been done. Not just the physician preference one that you just said, but even the genes. You know, like why would we think that we inherit these genes that only affect smoking and don't affect lung? 
lung cancer through other mechanisms. And sort of my first feeling about that is it's really good that that's the initial skepticism that people bring to the table. It, it shows that you're teaching epidemiology well enough that they're bringing that and kind of questioning it right away. I would just add that I hope that there's ways as us as teachers to get past that skepticism and think through how you can think about when to use them appropriately, how to think about the bias trade-offs that there might be. So maybe in your particular research area, there's just no way that you could ever deal with confounding accurately. And so this is your only hope if you can't measure or adjust for confounders using a traditional method. Or maybe when they start thinking about why they don't believe that that's an instrument, they can start pointing to things that they could measure in their data and incorporate into their analysis, or at least try to falsify the assumptions if they can't verify them. Do you think that in any way that this skepticism pertains to the fact, though, that we teach students to do multivariable regression analyses as their go-to approach for dealing with confounding if you can't randomize? And this only tends to come up, at least in our program, for doctoral students. Or do you think it's just a harder method to wrap your mind around? I think that maybe it's that a lot of what we encounter in epidemiology, as our teaching examples at least, tend to sound like we do have a good idea of the confounding. And so it's like when we teach something like multivariable regression or teach something like inverse probability weighting, I feel like we tend to use examples where it seems plausible that we've adjusted for the main confounders. Whereas often when we are teaching realistic examples of IV analyses, it's like we've jumped to the real messiness of true data. And so like maybe Maybe it's, it's just that we, we don't help that leap as much. I don't know if that's your experiences too. My experience is that you are asking students to make a leap from something that they know how to do to something that just sounds crazy to them. Like I'm just going to pick some other variable and I'm going to analyze them even though I know that this isn't the right group to put them in and I'm just going to do that. It's just like, why would I do that? I don't use instrumental variables in my own work, but every time I talk about them and hear about them, I'm like, this is a magic bullet. This is going to solve all of our problems and this is brilliant. I love this idea. And then, you know, I hear a real world example like what Matt just said about provider preference and I'm like, no, that actually makes no sense at all. Because if your provider prefers strongly, let's say, to have all their patients on statins and that preference of theirs would naturally affect your risk of having an MI, of having a heart attack, right? And so I don't see how that could be something exogenous. And, and another example, you know, I research obesity and Mendelian randomization is now a really popular topic in the obesity literature. And every time I see it, I think there's no way that you can obviously not empirically, but even, you know, qualitatively necessarily believe that the instrument doesn't affect your outcome, you know, mortality or whatever outcome am I again you're looking at that is what you're interested in so I, I, I'm of these two minds of it where I think it's really cool but coming back to what you said about real data being messy and real assumptions being messy I'm skeptical and I have a hard time with it in real life I don't know mm -hmm. if, if those are kind of dueling ideas that you you face a lot when you teach and talk about it yeah I agree with everything you just went through I think it adds to that as a field not just thinking about how we teach instrumental variables and in epidemiology but how we 
talk about them and how we as a field think about their placement is that we also just don't have as much practice thinking about what goes wrong when we don't think these assumptions hold perfectly. So again, thinking about your obesity research, Haley, if you are doing a more traditional confounding adjustment approach, you probably feel like you understand what unmeasured confounding there is in a particular study. You might actually have done a quantitative bias analysis to think about it or, or done some sort of additional falsification strategy or some sort of sensitivity analysis. And then even if you didn't do any of those things, you probably have a pretty heuristic idea of just thinking what direction of bias there might be or any of those kind of things. But if you think about IV analyses, we just don't have practice as a field thinking through that. So going back to this idea of could you use Mendelian randomization to study the effects of obesity, you right away diagnose that there might be all sorts of things wrong with why the genes might affect the outcomes of interest through other pathways. But it's really hard to then say, well, how much bias is there from that? Like, what are we worried about there? And even just thinking heuristically before getting to trying to quantify it, I think is something we all need to work on. So the next paper the three of us are going to work on together is quantitative bias analysis for instrumental variables. Perfect. I love this. <laughs> One of us has to have time to write this paper, right? Who, who, who on this podcast has all this extra time? Not it. Not, Not it. it. I'm touching my nose. Sonia. Oh, no. <laughs> or the first listener that wants to collaborate with all of us Ooh. can um, oh, yes. do that, too. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. All right. Now we'll know who really listens to the podcast all the way through. Is If you want to write a terrific paper that would make a great contribution to literature, email us, please. <laughs> okay, so if our emails are not flooded after this episode, we will know that either people don't care about quantitative bias analysis for instrumental variables, or there's nobody listening. Yes. <laughs> we'll never know which of those is possible. Right. We right. will never know. Okay, so I want to go back to, to something that came up earlier. And I asked this question of whether or not the instrument actually had to cause the exposure. And you said, no. So I'm going to say, I'm going to call that a myth about instrumental <laughs> variables. Myth is not the right word, but a popular misconception. Are there are there other popular misconceptions that you run into when it comes to instrumental variables? Yeah, let's. I'm trying to prioritize them in my head very quickly. <laughs> um, actually, maybe I, this is an apology to the listeners that eagerly wrote to us in the last uh, 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. um, one misconception yeah. is that there is actually some stuff that you could do to understand the bias. And it's just that that's not always in the applied research. So uh, I said that we couldn't verify the IV assumptions, but there are ways to falsify them. And people just generally don't use those tools to, to falsify them. Um, and then there's also, I think, a lot of growing interest in developing tools to try to think through how much bias there might be. So there's adaptations of the E value that Tyler Vanderweel and I um, wrote recently, but there's all sorts of different diagnostic plots or other approaches that we could do too. And it, because those aren't used yet, I think that there isn't a, a lot of people thinking about like what direction or magnitude of bias there might be for all these subtleties. Um, I have another question about myth. I guess it's, I'll answer it. I'll ask it in the form of a true or false. Instrumental variables are a panacea. Is that the word? Panacea? It solves all Panacea. solves all of our confounding related problems. False. So I think of them as simply replacing the assumption that we can measure baseline confounders, measure and adjust for baseline confounders using other approaches with these other assumptions that you have a true instrument. They're not going to solve selection biases, so they don't solve a lot of types of like loss to follow-up issues or things like that in your studies. Just a single instrument doesn't necessarily solve issues about time-varying confounding. Lots of different measurement issues are still going to be issues. So 
yeah, they definitely don't solve all our problems. Darn. All right. So I want to get on this, this true false. So in order to be an instrument, does the instrument have to have a strong effect on the exposure or a strong association with the exposure? True-ish. True-ish. I don't know. False-ish. False-ish. The stronger, the better, except I would say if it gets so strong, then you actually get in this other side of things where you start worrying it's associated with the very confounders you were worried about in the first place. Oh, interesting. Just like substantively, I would argue that a super strong instrument kind of gets you back into worrying about the issues you were trying to avoid. But on the weak side, you know, technically you could compute something given infinite data um, and just a really weak um, association between your instrument and your uh, treatment. But given finite data, you're going to end up having biases as well. So yeah, there, there's sort of these recommended rules of thumb of like how strong it needs to be. But as an epidemiologist, I don't like to give rules of thumb just like I don't like a p-value of 0.05, meaning something arbitrary, yeah. Because, and the reason I'm asking this is because, and as you answered it, I realized that's the issue is, you know, I've done simulations just to kind of try to answer that question for myself, and I can simulate pretty weak effect and still recover the true causal effect as long as I have a really massive data set that I create. And so it seems to me that, so the strong effect, uh, is it an assumption or is it just a, a condition i don't know yeah i don't tend to use the word assumption for it that i i just say it's a condition that needs to hold and then if you're just being like yes or no am i able to estimate a causal effect using this approach then any non-null association reaches that threshold but then if you're worried about bias because you have a small sample size or bias because you're worried that the weakness of this instrument is going to amplify biases due to the other assumptions not holding then all bets are off yeah Mm -hmm. I have a question not about the strength of the relationship between your instrument and your treatment, but about positivity. So I've wondered a little bit about, you know, coming back to the genetic variant in smoking or genetic variant and obesity, Mendelian randomization type examples. What happens with your analysis if all of the individuals who would be smokers have a particular variant and all of the individuals who are non-smokers would have a, the other variant, right? So if you have perfect, I, I'm not sure you would ever get perfect, but you know, if you have very small discordant cells in that way, or, or zero cells, I guess, in some way, as a thought experiment, how positivity would affect this instrumental variable analysis? So I would say what you just described actually sounds like a randomized trial with perfect adherence. And then why we would maybe make the mental leap that your intention to treat effect is your per protocol effect in that setting. So so it's sort of strange because I agree that you have these like zero cells and we're kind of trained to think of that as a positivity violation. But just because of the way we're using this data, that alone doesn't like prevent you from conducting the IV analysis. Particular positivity issue that you just talked through doesn't isn't one of your core assumptions. So we talked a little bit about some of these assumptions and what it means that you're actually estimating. When I do an instrumental variable analysis, what am I estimating? And how is it different from if I had just done a multivariable aggression, not aggression, multivariable regression <laughs> type approach? 
this is where we have to say that an instrument is actually not enough to estimate anything. That if you stopped at the assumptions that we've talked about, there's no estimator that gives you estimate for an average causal effect or an effect in any subgroup, for example. You could actually bound the effect, although this too is something that we rarely do in practice. But um, if you wanted to, there are bounding approaches for using just these core assumptions. But I think what you're getting at is that usually what people do is use either two-stage least squares regression or this IV ratio that we talked about or some sort of consistent method similar to those. And then they interpret their effect as an estimate in the so-called compliers. And yeah, let me try to unpack what that is because there's there's a lot going on there. And I, I struggle with this. This is, this is kind of where I myself get lost. Yeah. So in the terminology here is really confusing because it comes just from randomized trials, but then people that do IV analyses apply them everywhere else. But in a randomized trial, if we think about the different kind of patterns of how people adhere, you could think about people in a trial being in one of four mutually exclusive groups based on this like adherence patterns. So one would be people that regardless of if they were randomized to treatment or control, they always take the treatment. We could call those always takers. People who would never take the treatment, we could call never takers. People who had they been randomized to the treatment, they'd take the treatment. Had they been randomized to the control, they take the they they take the placebo or they don't take the treatment. And then defiers who would, for whatever reason, do the opposite of what they were randomized to. And so what people have shown, um, starting first with some seminal papers in the econ literature in the 1990s, is that if you also, in addition to assuming these first IV conditions hold, assume that there's no defiers in your data set, then all of these methods allow you to estimate the effect in the compliers. So it's this subgroup, and it's a really weird subgroup because we don't know who they are. So like it's just like you're saying, I can estimate this effect just in this subgroup, but you can do it at least. So there, there's this subgroup that you can estimate an effect in by assuming that there's no defiers. And then just to add to all this confusion, people still use the word compliers and defiers and always takers and never takers when they're proposing genes as instruments or when they're proposing physician preference as an instrument. And like those terms just don't really make sense in those other settings, even though counterfactually you're defining things the same way. And so is this analogous in any way to, in a randomized trial, the difference between an intention to treat and a per protocol? Are the compliers the per protocol? So I would think of the compliers as just being this subgroup where the intention to treat and the per protocol are equivalent, I guess. But it's like, it's still this subset of your full randomized trial. Whereas the way I would tend to define the per protocol effect as a question is what would happen had everybody in your trial actually adhered to the protocol rather than it being a subgroup. I see. So it really isn't the same. It's saying, what if we only had these people who were compliers? Right. Yeah. At least the way that I tend to define per protocol effects. But I think that this gets really confusing when you look at the literature because certainly there's a lot of literature out there that kind of confuses or conflates the analysis that we do in trials with the effects we're trying to estimate in trials. And we're getting better about that. But I think I'm trying to be careful of saying if my effect that I'm interested in is something, my analysis may or may not map onto that something. And, and yeah, in this case, I'm thinking of it as two different questions. And so in a trial, we have the intention to treat effect. And then a lot of times people want to know something like a per protocol. I take your point that we aren't 
really probably doing that in the in the instrumental variable version, but we want something that is akin to what's actually happening in those for whom they're actually getting the treatment. And the instrumental variable approach seems like it's a way to get at that. So why don't why doesn't anybody do this for a randomized trial? Because a lot of the problems with the typical per protocol approach is that you've now broken the randomization, so you have founding, but if you use this instrumental variable approach, you you don't have the confounding problems. Why don't people use it in randomized trials? So I think they should use them more personally. Like I I think that you're you're right to kind of pick up on this. And as we kind of already talked about, randomization often seems like a really good instrument, right? That like as you said, it's already unconfounded. It's already should be associated with whether or not people take a treatment. And so really in most randomized trials, your only question is, um, is there some way that the randomization might affect your outcome other than through affecting adherence? And you know, if, if you didn't have a blinded trial, that might happen. There's also this issue of like, if you had a head-to-head comparison of two different treatment and one form of non-adherence was taking neither treatment, then you can actually create these other biases too. So that violate that same assumption. So there, there are some trials that it might not be appropriate for, but there's a lot of trials that I think it would be a really good method to kind of add as a secondary analysis at least too. Yeah. And this assumption that you mentioned, the no fire. Is that also what we refer to as the monotonicity assumption? Yeah. The idea being, if you think about a monotonic relationship between your instrument and your counterfactual treatment levels, that's where the word monotonicity comes from. Again, I really do not like this terminology, if that's not already clear to your listeners. It's not great. So I'm really glad to hear you say this as somebody who's an expert in these methods because it's confusing in a lot of ways. Although you could say that about so many things in epidemiology where we have multiple terms even for things that just don't make any sense and they're not intuitive. Sonia, what do you uh, prefer as a term? Oh, see, that's hard because um, I I am better at just criticizing than no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, me too. It's, it's, it's way yeah. easier, obviously. But let's say right. you're the queen of the instrumental variable yes, kingdom yeah. and you could choose a term instead of monotonicity. What would you choose? So I have never tried to propose a new term. So maybe next time you have me on the podcast, I'll like think about how I'm going to be a trendsetter and do something else. What I tend to do when I teach is I just, I use the terminology in the context of a trial. And then I make sure that I've written out these counterfactual expressions everywhere so that when I change it to thinking about observational studies, I just like keep referring to the mathematics notation. It's really unsatisfying, though. I I will uh, take this challenge on. (laughs) Thanks. You know what, though? The best thing is if you're really just like criticizing and not actually proposing solutions, the best thing to do is just get a podcast. (laughs) Really great for that, we've found. Okay, so... I want to just ask you a couple of specific questions about instrumental variables. So you mentioned at the beginning that you were very specific in saying that when we're we're estimating these effects, we need to work on the risk difference scale. Is that exclusively true? I mean, can we only estimate linear models essentially? So there's a lot of ways that you can generalize IV estimation. Um, and actually, the G-estimation of structural nested models that Jamie Robbins proposed way back in the 1980s, you can use IV-like assumptions to estimate the parameters in those structural nested models too. And so if you're thinking in that approach, which I'm sure all your listeners think of structural nested models all the time. Of course. They dream, they dream about them. They do, I'm sure. Then you can start seeing opportunities for bringing in different 
kinds of instruments or multiple instruments, different types of exposures, so continuous or categorical exposures, um, and different types of outcomes too. So there is sort of general theory that you could work on if you didn't want to just use the approaches we've talked about. Yeah. And I bring this up because, of course, it's something that people ask me about when I do teach these things, but also because for me, actually, one of the most eye-opening things about learning instrumental variables and I'm sure the rest of you all knew this immediately when you started learning your epidemiology was that if you think of the structure of the simplest form of an instrumental variable in a DAG, it would be an arrow from your instrument to your exposure, an arrow from your exposure to your outcome. And if you want to know the effect of the instrument on the outcome, then that is just on the different scale. It's the multiplication of the risk difference between the instrument and the exposure and the exposure and the outcome. And I just, you know, somehow that never occurred to me and nobody taught me that and starting to actually see that, I mean, I know you do have to make some additional assumptions, but the DAGs that we're looking at are actually these systems of equations that actually relate to each other was really kind of fascinating. And instrumental variables is actually what led me to that. Oh, cool. I, I like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that what you just talked through is building on this idea that underlying that DAG to do that quick multiplication. You're first assuming that you're you're working on this different scale, right? Um, and then underlying it, you're, you're making some homogeneity assumptions. So it's not just all in the DAG, right. but you're right that the DAG really helps you see why those equations come together. Yeah. I know we've talked a little bit about how it hard it is to convey DAGs in podcast mm -hmm. format, but I am going to try to build on this very simple DAG we have talked about, which is your instrument into your treatment and your treatment into your outcome. How do you deal with time varying treatment? Is that something that people talk about in the IV world? Do you need multiple instruments for each instance of your treatment? Not many of us work in fields where your exposure is truly invariant, you know, especially my obesity work or, or other, there's lots of other examples, but what do we do in, in those kinds of situations with time varying exposures or, or I guess treatments? Yeah, that's a great question. I hope more people think about that over time as well. Oh, so another paper, another paper that you want <laughs> yes, people to email yes, you about. Yes. This is basically an ad for joining Sonia's research Please, group. Please uh, do so, yeah. <laughs> but again, I'm going to also say we have some papers out recently on this topic. So first, I think this is where it becomes important to make clear what your research question really is when you're doing these analyses. So if you think about just wanting to test whether your exposure has some effect on your outcome any point in time, you could actually still think about a single instrument as helping you there. And so if you think about obesity, just like, let's pretend we really had some genetic variant that was related to obesity. And it's true that it's related to obesity in childhood or in adulthood or, you know, all time points over the life scale. But you, for whatever reason, are convinced that it can't affect whatever outcome you're looking at at the end of life, except through that whole chain of events in between. If you start thinking about just the the test of like, is there some effect of obesity at some point in time on your outcome of interest, that gene that you inherited at conception might still allow you to test that. You're not going to know when during the lifetime. You're not going to know how much it matters. You're not going to know who it matters in. But it is still this like test of a particular null hypothesis. And we had a paper uh, published in the European Journal of Epidemiology a couple years ago looking at that. 
But then, yeah, if you're trying to estimate the effect, that becomes super complicated super quickly because one instrument is not going to be enough to get at that unless you're making even more heroic assumptions than um, what we can get to in a podcast. Yeah. So you mean one instrument as in you can use the same variable, Mm -hmm. but you'd need multiple measures of that instrument. Is that what you mean by one instrument? I guess I was still sort of thinking through this Mendelian randomization standpoint where like you inherit your genes at conception. And so the fact that your instrument doesn't change over time complicates things. Um, but yeah, if you had a time varying instrument along with your time varying exposure, then there's again, this this plug for J.B. Robbins 1980s papers that I could put in. Again, that nobody really uses in practice often enough, <laughs> perhaps because there yeah. are no time varying instruments in practice too, but that's another thing. <laughs> Fair enough. So the last thing I just wanted to ask you about is you mentioned these falsification tests. Can you tell us a little bit more about what those are and what we should be thinking about as we do our instrumental variable analysis? Yeah. So the first thing is that there's actually some pretty straightforward inequalities that you can compute given your data set that won't ever tell you that your IV assumptions hold. But if you compute them, they can sometimes tell you that there's evidence in your data that they can't hold. So like it's like they, they falsify for you that like your data set is not consistent with your assumptions. So that's the first kind of easy pass without doing anything extra. You, you should just compute those inequalities qualities as a gut check that that things are aligning. And then going beyond that, a lot of the strategies that we think about for more traditional confounding adjustment methods also could be adapted to IV analyses. So in this great paper on quantitative bias analyses that we're thinking about, we could think about things like negative controls helping with IV analyses too, both for negative control populations or outcomes or so on. Okay, so my last question then, if instrumental variables were a stock within epidemiology, would you be buying or selling? <laughs> Why am I considering buying or selling it? Am I trying to... Do you think, do you... Do you think their value is going to go up or down within the field? Sorry, I'm laughing to myself a little too much because I'm not sure about value versus whether I have trust in the company or something along those lines. Ooh. No, I... I... I'm going to go with buying, but that's because I, I have faith that there's going to be some listeners really developing these bias analytic techniques so that we really start developing as a field a way to use this responsibly. So that's that's where my hope is for IV analyses, is that our listeners are going to solve some of these issues so that it becomes a better and better tool for us. Fantastic. Well, Sonia, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really fun. Yeah, thanks again for having me. This is great. By the way, I do want to say before we go that, so I believe it was you won the 2018 Brian McMahon Early Career Award at SER. And I have to say to all our listeners, if you're an SER member, go online and watch Sonia's talk. It was fantastic. It was really one of my favorite SER talks. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) And so for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, we strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting. You would get a, a discount for that one. But it also gives you access to the SER library, which gives you access to a whole bunch of really great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We also do want to plug our sister podcast, which is Casual Inference from the American Journal of Epidemiology. If you like this podcast, we think you'll like that one. And we really appreciate you listening, and we hope that you will be on the lookout for our next episode. Mm